Hi! Welcome to Perspective Detective. I'm Sabrina DeYoung, and I am not a real detective. However, my superpower is listening and being genuinely curious. I am on a mission to widen our perspective as we listen to other people's stories and experiences. I believe when we hear each other's stories, we humanize humans, which can result in less judgment and more compassion for one another. I sincerely believe we are all just trying to do our best. I am so excited to learn together. Let's begin. Hi, welcome back to Perspective Detective. I'm Sabrina DeYoung and today I am talking to Leo Weiniger. We knew each other when we both worked for the state of Utah's government workers back when we were itty babies, um, but now Leo lives in Texas. And I really wanted to talk to him because I discovered that he went through a big faith crisis. And I think it's pretty fair to say that in general, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our faith and religion is not just something that we do or believe, but it's a big part of who we are. And actually, now that I say that out loud, I imagine that most organized religions probably are the same way and can probably relate to that. Anyway, that being said, with faith being a big part of our culture and culture being a part of our identity, I wanted to talk to Leo and hear a lot more about his experience going through a faith crisis. Yes. Leo, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background before we get into the meat of this discussion? Yeah, yeah. So so hi, everybody. Um, and hi again, Sabrina. It's been a little while since we've talked, I think. So, yes. <laughs> but yeah, yes. we, uh, but the, at the time, of, about the time I was transitioning out of working for the state, um, about 10 years ago now, I started working for a tech company in Utah. And it was about the time also that my first son was born. And I uh, came across some information on the internet that was surprising to me, that was new. And yeah, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it, so it was related to Joseph Smith, our founder. And uh, I wasn't really a very good student of our history, of our church, uh, at, until that point. Um, I, I kind of thought church history is for the old people, that it's kind of boring. <laughs> and until I came across that salacious material that was novel, I uh, was really um, kind of ignorant in a lot of ways. I hadn't put any time in. Uh, to study uh, history and try to understand not only our history, but history in general. And so my perception, the way I perceived things was very simple. I was, frankly, to say it, I was ignorant and naive. Mm -hmm. And um, even though I was 30 years old, I just hadn't ever really spent the time digging in and trying to understand difficult aspect, aspects of our history. So anyway, like a lot of people will have their belief in something that becomes deconstructed. Uh, my belief in Joseph Smith as a prophet was deconstructed, and which means just it's an academic term for the tearing apart or the tearing down or dismantling of a belief system. So, like just to illustrate for any listeners, we have some people who are raised believing in a round Earth, but at some point they may run into some information. They have these videos on on YouTube that, I mean, you know, someone that looks and sounds smart explains all of the reasons why a round earth isn't plausible and how a, a flat earth is. And because they can't answer all of these, what are actually just accusations against 
around earth uh, theory or just the truth of it, <laughs> these people mm-hmm. will, their faith will be deconstructed and around earth. And so that's kind of what happened to me. But in a religious context, my perception was changed because of a lot of different critical arguments that were being made. Or I didn't have the tools, cognitive or emotional or not in a lot of ways, spiritual tools really to handle the accusations that I was facing. And so lost my faith, went through a faith crisis, and I didn't believe in God for about a year. And at that point, um, I was able to recover, but that's a different part of the story. But I'll, st- I'll stop and pause there. I, I like the word deconstructed because it, to me, it's like we have, you know, like we have this building block of things and it just gives a good visual that that was knocked down, but then has the potential to be rebuilt in a new way. And mm-hmm. I don't know yet if that happened for you or how it happened, but can you tell me how that, how your faith crisis affected you socially and how it changed your really your worldview. Yeah. Um, well, in the time I felt very alone, I felt afraid. I felt worried of hurting people with this new knowledge that I had gained. Um, I, we, in the church, we have bishops who are kind of like the lead pastor for uh, our local congregation. And our bishop, um, I knew the man, he was a good man, but very simple-minded. And uh, just in my associations with him, I knew that he wouldn't know what I was struggling with. So I bypassed him and went straight to what's called a stake president, which is the leader above the, the bishop. And right. I presented some of the ideas to him. And that that poor man, um, even a stake president, when in our church is kind of a, a bigger leader, I uh, was really unaware of the issues. I could tell that it was I was at, he was out of his depth um, with me and um and I was unable to get any good answers. And I've later realized that he was not a scholar, so I, I'm not as bar- bothered about it as I was at the time. But I, I tried to um, get some help, and I didn't receive the help that I needed. And so the one person I thought, well, I need to go and get some help from really wasn't able to help me. And so I felt, like I said, very alone. So your identity is really, so we talk about faith crisis, but mm-hmm. in a faith crisis, it's so much more. It's, it's your community. It's your family. It's your spouse. It's your identity as what we call a child of God. And I didn't really know if I was a child of God anymore. I I began to question my spiritual experiences that I'd had on my mission and and other times in the church, serving a a mission, service mission for the church. And and so it was really, really a scary, dark time for me. It's called the dark night of the soul. That's what a lot of people uh, talk about it as. And and that's exactly how it felt to me. Wow. That that sounds really discouraging. That phrase, I, I feel that when you say it, a dark yeah. night of the soul. Yeah, it was, it was very difficult. So, and, and again, like with this construction, like you had this house built and it's gone, like, like your yeah. soul is almost homeless in a yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, well, there's a lot of different analogies. My favorite one is the shelf analogy, the broken shelf. So as you learn difficult things and, Again, is the example of the round earth theory. You have this this uh, round earth uh, shelf that you have all these books on there that you think that maybe are challenging that theory. You start to learn about flat earth and you put all these heavy books up there, questions that are unanswered as you watch these videos and learn about uh, flat earth and why it's a flat earth. And at some point your shelf breaks where you can't really sustain all of the, the heavy weight of all of the accusations, the arguments against 
the round earth uh, that you've been raised to believe in. And mm-hmm. so your flat earth is all you're left with. Well, that must be a flat earth because all of these, uh, my shelf is crashed. And so I had a crashed faith shelf where all of my unanswered questions had turned into doubt and my doubt, my like these big heavy books had eventually overburdened uh, my shelf and it crashed to the ground. And so I, I like that analogy because at some point you kind of have to either walk away from the shelf that's crashed and just kind of abandon the books or maybe even burn them and leave it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you can try to stand there hovering around, kind of sorting through some of the, the broken shelf pieces and the books. And ho- hopefully you're not alone. Hopefully someone will come up and put their arm around you and say, looks like your shelf crashed. How can we repair this shelf and try to get some of these uh, books back up on your shelf and try to answer some of those questions. And, and I eventually had someone in my life that helped to do that. A question I was going to ask a little bit later, but I'd like to visit it now. So if someone knows a person who is going through this faith crisis, this dark night of the soul, and their shelf has crashed, what, in your opinion, is the best way to, I guess, to interact with them, to help them? Um, what do you wish that somebody had done for you Yeah, when you I mean, in the- that crisis time? There's a lot of uh, research on on this, what people need, and um, and number one, I would say someone who understands what it's like um, to have a something that's happened to them that's very difficult that is willing to put themselves in a place of empathy. Um, if if they can't practice empathy, maybe some sympathy, and yeah. and, and genuinely reach out and trying to understand where the person's at. Um, the best scenario, though, is are people who have knowledge about the issue that you're dealing with. So, like, for example, if you go into a suicide prevention group and you are suffering from uh, suicide ideation and you need someone um, to minister to you to help you to get through this difficult time, uh, you don't want to talk to someone who's never really faced that. You want to have someone who says, I've been there. I understand how difficult this is. I want to be there for you and listen to you and help you to get out of this. And Brene Brown is one of my favorite researchers, and she talks about empathy and how it's imagining yourself or the person that you're trying to help is down in a hole. And you can like, as a way of sympathy, you can stick a a stick down there, a pole and say, hey, grab on and I'll try to pull you out. Or you try to throw them some food or or try to, you know, throw them a bandage or something to help with some of their issues. And that's not really helpful for the person down in the hole. They want you to climb down into the hole and sit next to you right. <laughs> on the yeah. ground and talk to you and help you maybe to figure out a way to get back up out of the hole together instead of yeah. tossing them things to fix them. I love that visual. Yeah. I've seen that one before and I really like it. So I had a friend who kind of went through the same thing not she didn't go as deep she just felt like oh i'm starting to have a lot of questions that i didn't know i would have these questions before and she actually had the opportunity to speak to a church scholar an old professor and mm-hmm. was able to get all of her questions answered i thought that was interesting when you'd mentioned that you talked to your bishop and stake president you know these these leaders in the church that you know are over the congregations but they weren't necessarily scholars Right. Do you think that it would have been helpful at that time for you to speak to a scholar that knew, you know, kind of just the facts and the circumstances of what had happened in the history? 
or was this more of a journey that you really had to feel your way through? No, I, I mean, there's a movement, uh, kind of within the church. There's some good people who are trying to coach, uh, bishops and other leaders in the church and even parents and things, people that want to be better equipped to handle these situations for their loved ones. And I can just mention one of them. There's a guy named Kurt Frankum who runs what's called leading saints for any people. He has this awesome, uh, website and he does a lot of stuff to try to help to train leaders in the church. And he's not, it's not a calling. It's just something he does on the side to help. And, and I was part of one of the panels there and, and helping to give uh, some bishops maybe that would hear my message a little more information, but our bishops are really untrained, you know, lay clergy, they just get called and they have some training, but there's no real, you know, deep trauma training. <laughs> Someone is in tra- trauma with the church and be- feels betrayed. They need someone who has not only church history knowledge and around the issues, but someone who can sit with that person in their sorrow and walk with them hand in hand. And a lot of bishops try, but some of them, like I said, they're out of their 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 depth and and what they can do to minister. So yeah, yeah they're yeah, yeah they are definitely out of their league, and we put a lot of heaviness on them. You yeah. know, we just kind of assume that oh, my bishop. I can go talk to him and he's going to have all the answers. And that's not necessarily true. Like they're just people. Yeah. Untrained generally. So, yeah. So that's, that was my, that was something I would, would have loved to have had um, at the time when I asked, cause I, I, I actually skipped, like I said, I skipped my Bishop, went straight to the stake president thinking he's a smart man. He should know about this. And I mean, he kind of tried, I, I, but mostly it was just bearing his testimony, which means sharing what he believes to be true to me, encouraging me to go back to the basics of reading my scriptures, saying my prayers. and and um, But he didn't really say, you know, Leo, those are difficult issues. I've wrestled with those as well. Here's a couple of answers of how I've come to terms with those issues. I'm here for you. Let's talk, you know, call me on my cell phone tomorrow and <laughs> I want to hear how you're doing. I'm going to give you some resources, you know, anything like that would have been, you know, miles or leagues above what, what happened. Um, and I don't blame him. I'm not mad at him. I'm just saying he was, he didn't know what he didn't know. You know, he yeah. hadn't been trained to deal with me. And so, yeah, so I didn't get the help that I needed from my ecclesiastical source. It was a different source that I got my help from. Can, can you speak more on that now Then how did you, what was your process of healing? Yeah. Okay. So when you go through a faith crisis, you experience what I call the gap or what people have called the gap. And it's where your ideal uh, view of the church and of history and everything and of Joseph Smith, for example, becomes not real. It's not the real reality of who Joseph Smith was or what the church is to you. So you need to find ways to fill that gap. Uh, And so um, I didn't know that, but I just kind of had this, this gaping hole, this gap in my my beliefs. Um, I was trying to go through the motions. I was still married. I had my first child and I was uh, alone. And so I, I didn't really know how to solve this. And all of a sudden, one day out of the blue, a voice, it was an audible voice. I don't, it was, I, I heard a voice. It was a whisper that came from like kind of above my head. I was in my house. I know exactly where I was. And it said, contact Stephen Harper. It's kind of a soft whisper, but it was a, vo- a real voice. And, it's, and it kind of shook me. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I wasn't 
asking for any help really. I mean, I'd, I'd stopped praying. I I was praying with my wife, but going through the emotions and like, you know, I was a, I was a trained member of the church, so I knew how to pray right. and I was hiding it, but I didn't really, my heart wasn't in my prayers. And so, um, but all of a sudden this voice said, contact Stephen Harper. And Stephen Harper is a church historian, one of the best that we have. And he taught my DNC, Doctrine and Covenants, is a book of scripture at BYU, at Brigham Young University. And I had that class with him and I was impressed with him at the time. I liked his class when I was still a believer and he was smart. He was kind. He was humble. The man was just the, the most amazing example of a Christ-like person that I'd ever met. And But I didn't thought about him for years since I had his class. But all of a sudden, that voice said, contact Stephen Harper. And I felt like it pierced me to my heart. It was in my mind. It, I heard it in my ears, it, just my whole soul. And I, I kind of shook me, but I didn't really act on it right away. I was kind of like, well, that was weird. <laughs> And another, the day later, I thought about it again and I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And so I sent him an email and tried to uh, be as honest as I could be, but I was still nervous about explaining where I was uh, spiritually. And I just explained some of my issues with Joseph Smith, what I was concerned about. And he replied and basically uh, admitted to me that there were some issues that um, we know about and he confirmed the facts of history. Um, but he, then he asked me to to think about the the meaning, the new meaning that I was placing around those facts, that I was assigning to those facts of history. And he invited me to examine my assumptions, my new assumptions that I was making about Joseph Smith, because my assumptions had, had changed. Instead of seeing him as a nearest to God type of character, I was now seeing him as uh, a predator, as a... Uh, greedy, lustful con man. And those assumptions around the facts that I had been assigning, new, newly assigned assumptions, had destroyed my view of the man, Joseph Smith. And he, he just paused me in my tracks and he gave me what I call my spiritual defibrillator. He shocked me uh, and also academic defibrillator and shock, shocked me with his scholarship, his knowledge, his spirit, his love. And that email returned just one email uh, it took me back uh, back to being with him in his class and took me back to my spiritual experiences. And I thought, well, maybe I can try to re-examine my assumptions. And so then I started to pray for real, started to study more church-related materials that were coming from good church scholars. And my answer started to come to my difficult questions and my faith slowly rebuilt. And over the past 10 years, I'm still rebuilding some things. So he sa- essentially he asked you to evaluate what meaning you are getting out of the story that you were telling in your own head. Yes. Because right? facts are neutral, right? They, right. They, they, they should be neutral. Like they don't, they don't necessarily say one thing or the other about what a person is thinking and feeling in history. So you have, exactly. you know, you have a, a, histor- a historical character who uh, maybe all the facts point to this person as being a terrible person. But you don't know unless you can see into the heart and mind of that person. And that's that's the trick. Yeah, I just, I love that so much. Is that's, that's something that I have been thinking about a lot is what is the story that I'm telling myself? Again, I think that's a Brene Brown thing. And what am I making this mean? You know, if somebody says something to me or I read something and it affects me in a way that, whether positive or negative, what am I making it mean? It's It's your thoughts about that information that we're taking in that really creates meaning to us. Um, 
So I think that's very, very valuable information to consider in really all aspects of our life, not just a faith crisis, but anything is what are you making this circumstance mean? Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, how did you change your story? Well, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine, yeah, you do more research and you read more things, but if you're committed to your story, you're going to continue to hold on to that. Yeah, right. Once you've lost trust in the institution of the church as being a place of sor- source of truth, uh, being reliable, your simple faith when you grow up in the church in, in a high demand religion that we are, um, it's very authoritative view of religiosity. So you have the authority of the church, the leaders is all coming, you know, connecting you with God. And when that authority is challenged by difficult information, your beliefs can be really just completely uh, lost, right? So so you have to find other ways to be able to manage that that loss of trust and try to rebuild trust. And the way that I did that was really through a balanced study. I start, stopped reading only the critical material because I was my curiosity had led me down the rabbit hole is what you would call it. And I stopped going just to those sources as the primary source of truth. Because once you lose trust in someone, it's like, you know, someone ruins your your feeling of trust with them. You don't go back to them right away to to get information from them or to rely on them. You go to other people, even if the other person is really a terrible person <laughs> who who is not not smart in the advice that you need. We rely on people for advice and for for help, even if that person is really not the best person for that information. Like you go into a restaurant and you could ask a a, a new waiter who really has no idea about the menu, hey, what would you recommend? And that waiter, you know, may not have any idea, but they'll give you a recommendation, right? And they'll mm-hmm. give you their best best idea. So that was where I I was kind of struggling was, uh, who do I trust after I've lost my trust in the institution? And I trusted Stephen Harper. I liked the man. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading some of his material that he sent to me. Um, I started, like I said, praying again, started reading other church historians to see, well, these guys are uh, maybe bias because everyone has a bias, but maybe uh, maybe they might have some good uh, methodology in, in their research and, and providing some reliable answers to some of these questions. And so I started reading those, and that was kind of like the primed the pump of getting revelation, which is answers from God. And I started receiving answers, not necessarily directly through the answers from what we'd call apologists or people that defend the church, but it was kind of like. Uh, circumstantial or like indirect answers that I got, like I'd be in the middle of the night, I'd like wake up and all of a sudden I'd receive this answer to a difficult question that I'd had for a long time because I'd been working on it, praying for it. And all of a sudden an answer would come out of the blue. And that's helped to soften my heart. I was really angry for a while and I I've slowly, my heart was softened as I started to receive answers. Oh, that's incredible. I know that God answers our prayers. That is something that I definitely have a, I know it's past belief. I've seen it in my life. Um, but you do have to ask and do the research and be willing to receive those answers. And it sounds like you were in a place that you were open to receiving answers. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I wanted it and I did the work and I started listening, not just listening to the critics of the the church, but listening to good scholars and trying to really accept and appreciate their answers. Not all their answers worked for me, but a lot of them did. And then just the answers straight from God um, were just incredible. 
the miracles that happened. So do you think it was more those those personal answers that you received like in the middle of the night from God and from the spirit that was more beneficial than reading any of the good books that you were reading? It was combination, but the, the ones that matter the most to me are the ones that I received out of the blue. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, I think both, both matter, but the ones that I, that I can, that I can easily talk about and that I, I love are the ones that I've had that have really just changed my, completely changed my, my mindset. Like I can give you one quick example if that's okay. Uh, yeah, sure. So one of the biggest issues that I had with Joseph was his plural marriage, meaning that he married multiple women. It's called polygyny. Um, and this form of polygamy, polygyny, uh, which Joseph was engaged in, uh, was extremely difficult for me to understand. The The record is kind of fragmented on, and we have some stories, some reports from women who were involved with it at the time, but there's, and there's some people who left the church who were very critical of it. And it's a really not a very good historical record. You have some some hits um, and some misses and there's a lot of information on it, but it's just not very clear. And so one day out of the blue, I was praying and also preparing to write an answer to someone who was struggling with polygamy. And all of a sudden my, I couldn't, my eyes, my, my, my vision went blurry and I couldn't type. And I all of a sudden heard the words, you do not understand of that, which you speak or that you do not understand that, which you speak. And I took that to meaning that I, what I was trying to convey to this person, I did not understand it. Even though all, all of my research, I was really ignorant. And I kneeled down and I started to pray. And all of a sudden I saw um, who I know to be Joseph and Emma in a vision. I saw them sitting on their bed in their bedroom talking about plural marriage. And I saw them loving each other. Uh, together talking. And I I realized in that moment that Emma loved Joseph and knew that he was trying to do his very best, even though she hated the practice Yeah, and that she never, and I realized also through my research and I came to my remembrance was Emma never condemned Joseph ever and came out and said he was a monster. He was an adulterer and she would have had every reason to do that. She married a new man. He, they since left. She stayed behind and she, but she never came out and condemned Joseph as a as a horrible person, or, you know, saying that he didn't really translate the Book of Mormon. All those things she could have done, come out and said if he was a fraud, and she never did. And the, so the Spirit taught me to listen to this important female voice, this woman who was there, who knew Joseph and had every reason under the sun to condemn him after he had died. Wow, that is an incredibly powerful experience. Yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I don't, Emma, everyone. Yeah. Listen to Emma. Seriously. I, <laughs> I read, or maybe it was a movie that I saw, but I know that Emma raised one of the children of one of Joseph's other wives. Um, like without question, she just took him in. I don't know what had happened to the child's mom, but this was well after Joseph was murdered and mm-hmm. she raised him. I'm just going to interrupt myself here real quick. Emma did not raise one of Joseph's children. She actually raised the child of her second husband who she had married. After Joseph died, he had had an affair with another woman. 
that woman sent her child to Emma when she could no longer take care of him, and Emma raised that child. This doesn't take away from the fact that she's amazing, but I was wrong about which child she had raised and wanted to correct myself here. Okay, back to the original conversation. Um, she was a good which, woman. Yeah, yeah, I was always impressed with that. And really, it struck me as just, she just had unconditional love. She was an amazing person. And mm-hmm. she she knew her husband. She knew who he was and what he did. And whether or not she agreed with everything that he chose to do. And again, we don't know. I mean, he was, again, he was just a man that was given an extremely heavy burden. And he was, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I don't know <laughs> where the plural marriage came from. If he, if it, it was a commandment of God, or if he was just, you know, trying to bring back like the Abrahamic law or, or what, I don't know. But I do believe, and I, I, you know, I carry this out among people that I know now, like just because somebody does something wrong, doesn't mean that everything else that they did right is now wrong. Yeah. We're all a mixed bag. Exactly. So, Yeah. And I'm, I'm more on the believe that Joseph was asked to do it side, but I, I have space. I keep a nice space for people because I was there for a while who I believe that it wasn't possible for someone to ever practice this. But as I've learned more about the practice of polygamy, even today, there's a large movement in the world uh, of consenting adults of living in polyamorous relationships, right? There's this new... Mm-hmm secular movement where it's okay to, to love multiple people. And so maybe Joseph was advanced for his time. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Not. I mean, I, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I should say my opinion, but you know, sometimes it would be nice to have another helper in the house. <laughs> well, yeah. Talk to fundamentalist uh, 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 break off groups from our church or other polygamous groups. And the women just love it. They, they, I mean, and not all of them, you know, love it, but there's a lot of strong advocates for the practice. And so I think consenting adults, as long as there isn't religious coercion, you know, authoritative coercion going on. And that's where people, I think, get hung up with Joseph as they think that he coerced these women to marry him. But I think that's debatable. Yeah, I think that's a really, really excellent condition that you put on that. And again, I think, as you stated, I think, again, you're going to find what you want to look for. If you hate polygamy, oh, yeah. you're going to find the women that feel oppressed and don't want to be in there. And if you're just open to listening, then you're going to find people yes. that are really happy with where they're at. We, you know, where I live, we have lots of polygamous families out mm-hmm. here in out in the West. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, anyway, that is an interesting topic. So where are you at now with Joseph Smith? I think we started this with, you know, your, yeah. you know, you, your whole deconstructed belief was because of bad things that you had heard about him. Where does he stand with you now? I had a blurry, we'll talk about perception. We'll tie it in. So I had a blurry perception of Joseph growing up. It was very simple, but it was blurry because I didn't understand the depth or the breadth of, of the man, Joseph Smith. And, um, and, and at some point my perception of that, that very uh, simple minded, easy uh, perception of Joseph, was destroyed by the information that I learned and my perception then became very cynical of who he was. And, and, uh, I needed some new information, new ways of thinking. I need to understand some, I need a new vocabulary. Like, uh, there's a new 
term I learned was epistemology, which is the study of knowledge or how you know what you know. And that with some humility and, and kind of starting from some basic uh, presuppositions um, that I could, I could rely on, some good experiences I've had with Joseph. The Book of Mormon is an amazing gift to the world. Um, reading about those who loved and knew Joseph best, my perception started to soften towards Joseph. And the spirit returned into my life. There was an absence of the spirit. I could, I could sense the difference. As I started to receive answers, my, I asked for a softened heart. And one of the first prayers that I gave as I was returning out of my faith crisis was, was a, a prayer alone in my, my house, up in my, our bedroom. Um, and like I said, I was alone. My wife was out with the baby. And I started uh, just yelling at the ceiling. <laughs> And I did. I was still kind of not sure if God was around, but I was so angry at this supposed God who allowed all of this stuff to happen in my life, and I was angry at still at uh, church history, some of the things that happened, and I just unloaded verbally out loud. And I didn't know if God was even listening. I didn't know if He was real, but I guess my testimony is that God absorbed my anger. He took it and He returned it with great love. And just like a warm hug of answers, <laughs> of peace. Yeah. And so I love, again, once again, I love and appreciate the man, Joseph Smith, who was a prophet. I believe he was. I strongly believe it. And I have a, what I call a justified belief that Joseph Smith was a prophet now. And that the church leaders today are called of God. I think that they really do have priesthood keys. And I'm, um, I'm an advocate for being patient in your time of trial, of time of questioning and of also getting uh, people to help you to people that know to rally around you and help you. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Being patient in your time of trial. That is. It's hard to do. Oh, that is hard. It is so hard, but so, so valuable. A few years ago, we went through kind of a traumatic experience and, you know, everyone was trying to tell me what to do. And I was like, you know, I just, I don't want to make a decision while I am in the thick of it, you know, like mm -hmm. we've got to ride this out a year before we talk <laughs> or mm -hmm. so being patient in your time of trial. I think that is so important. Yeah. Just, I guess a general uh, uh, condition of patience, because you may feel like, feel like you're being patient, but you're really not, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so it's like, if you're in the thick of it and it's all cloudy and difficult at the time, um, it's hard to feel like you're being patient um, and hard to keep that patience up, but you have to keep trying. Oh. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think this is a, a really interesting perspective. I think that probably every member of the church knows somebody who's going through a hard time, but may not know that they're going through a hard time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important for all of us to even just be patient with one another, especially when we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I, if a I could, a quick plug for something that may help people. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're listening and you know someone who's struggling, um, you of course can reach out to me, uh, my email address. I answer emails and talk to people for free. I don't charge anything. I'm not like a life coach or anything, but um, I, I, um, my email address is Leo Winiger or Leo Weiniger. Uh, and you can provide that for them, but Leo Winiger yep. at gmail.com. And you can look me up online. And reach out to me. And we have this awesome community that we started in 2017. It's called Uplift. 
and we can you can go there and ask your questions and receive answers from people who have been through the challenges that you're facing. Um, and it's a great place for being ministered to back to a, a state of faith. Is this is this like a Facebook group or a website? It's a Facebook group, and okay. we have a YouTube channel. Uh, but if you um, can get to Facebook and have an account there, please reach out to us. I think we also have Instagram, but I don't okay. know how much we do there. So Yeah, I'll definitely include all of that in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on yeah. here and share your story. And Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you for listening to Perspective Detective today. I really appreciated Leo sharing his story and being vulnerable and open. I think, I truly think that hearing these different perspectives really up levels our lives. If you like the show, I would appreciate a rating and review. To be totally honest, it gives me validation. Just being honest there. (laughs) And Make sure to subscribe so you get all of the latest episodes automatically updated to your podcast distributor. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you have a beautiful day.